Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. John chapter 4 is a text that is frequently used for evangelism. It's the story of the woman of the well. And in fitting with our theme, Be a Light, the theme that we have throughout this past year, we have felt that we needed to, in a year where there's a lot of closing up, a lot of kind of hunkering down this last year and a half with COVID, we really felt that we needed to look for ways to go out, uh, be a little countercultural that way. And so began a number of, in, in every quarter, so began last winter, then spring, summer, and then the fall with our EMS appreciation. We want to just express thanks and to be a blessing to represent our Lord. This text here in John chapter 4, again, is often used, and just about, I think it was nine or ten months ago, I actually spoke a message in the context of it being an example of how Jesus just so naturally shared faith in just normal conversation. Here you have Jesus. First of all, you see him tired. We don't often see texts where Jesus is tired, where they actually say he's tired. He had to be exhausted a lot of times because his schedule was nuts. But he was tired here, you see. And in his tiredness, he's at a well, and you see this natural conversation take place between him and this gal. And it's one of the best passages we have in helping us how just to very naturally just converse, begin to ask questions, start it off with the question, then listen to the answers, and dialogue based on those interest points, because in the heart of every person, we long for something more, and this conversation goes that way. That is frequently what is preached around this particular passage. But this passage is, although that's true, this passage is fundamentally about the last five verses that we're going to be reading today. So we pick it up, John chapter 4. Let's start at verse 4. Follow along with me. Just read along. Now, Jesus had to go to Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Everybody say Sychar. I had to listen to see how that actually was pronounced on a Bible app. And the only way I remember is it sounds like cigar. Okay, so, so if I ever call it cigar, get, please forgive me. I'm word association. Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was, there it is, was from the journey. He sat down by the well. It was about noon. He's already tired. It's midday. Now, how many here look forward to an occasional midday nap? Okay, no, no. The kids are going, oh, I dread those times. I remember I was made to have the noon. Okay, let's keep going. It's been noon, seven. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered. Again, this dialogue back and forth. It's a great picture. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I don't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, here's where we're really picking up speed. 19, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. Now, note how many times the word worship and worshipped is mentioned here. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jew. Yet a time is coming and is now come when the true worshiper will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in the spirit and in truth. I want to draw your attention to the last part of 23 and 24 again. Note this part. It says here, For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Do you see that? They're the kind of worshipers God seeks after. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Lord, I just again pray, help us to understand this. Help us to understand this in the context of this conversation taking place. Because this conversation transcends 2,000 years into the moment right now. Just as, Lord, you said, the time is now here, so it is today. The time is now here for us to understand something deeply about this scripture we ask in your precious name. Amen. It was a number of years ago, Lori and I went to a district conference. The conference was uh, in Western Interior District. We pastored Western Interior District, so that means the other side, the west side of Young Street. We were at the conference. Uh, we have yearly conferences, and the conference is a three-day conference. It starts on an evening and then goes for two more days past that. At every conference, they always have a little bit of devotional, a little bit of word preached, conference is attended by uh, people who are in ministry, full-time, itinerant, part-time, in ministry of some type. We, uh, we were there, we got there for the Friday night, we were seated, started, and they also have worship, and they typically have a local church's ministry team come and lead in worship. So this was also true, and I can't remember where this particular one was. I, do, I did mark it in my journal, though, this particular conference. We were three songs into worship, and, and I wasn't the least bit perplexed. We were worshiping, and it was, it, was, it was good worship. The three songs we started with, the band started with, the worship leader started with, uh, we didn't know. We had not heard them before. Uh, good songs, and we were worshiping. That was on the evening. 
The next day was a day of conference, business sessions, but there was the word, there was worship. But here's what began to happen by the third day. I was getting there early. Because something was happening during the worship time that was deeply impacting me. Those that were leading in worship were coming out of God's presence and welcoming us in. In a way that in that time, and here's how I wrote it down, I began, it says, by the end of the week, God had led me into a deeper realm of praise and worship than I had been able to enter for quite some time. I actually put down the time. I've been, I was led into a deeper realm of his presence. And by the time I got to the third day, I was getting there early. Something had transcended over my spirit and it was moving me deeply. I'd realized, I'm going to use a word Pastor Trish really likes, I had become crusty. I'd become crusty. I, I was pastoring at the time. I was ministering, preaching. I think things were going okay. There was nothing in my journal as I look back now that nothing flags me. It was just life. Things were going okay. If you asked me how I was doing, I probably would say I'm doing fine. If you'd said if I had any prayer requests, it wouldn't have been around that. But when I had drank from the well in three days, from some people who had been drinking deeply, I began to drink deeply, and I recognized it for what it was. And I drank deeply. Hmm. Some of you, I can see by your nodding, you know what we're talking about here. You know those moments where you drank deep and you didn't realize you were that thirsty. I'm not referring to physical drink. I'm referring to the spirit. You drank deeply. You know, if we're not careful, we get caught up in worship machinery. Worship team, those of you who serve on the worship team, beware of the machinery of worship. You receive the Notice of the set list days before. You go through, you listen to the YouTube clips on it. You check out the temple. There's a certain temple. Every song has a temple. What is the temple that you have to play that song at? There's a pitch. There's a rising and a falling. There's a story behind the song. And you begin to try to understand the story. Some songs are new. Some are not so new. Every song is unique and done uniquely based on the time, the place, and the band. And you begin to go through, you begin to maybe even practice the click time, you begin to, maybe as you begin to set up worship, you hone your instrument, you begin to know how to lead in and lead out, you pause at the proper moment, you bring the rise to the crescendo, the proper things of the skill. But be careful that it doesn't simply get you caught up in the machinery of worship. It so easily does. I firmly believe in skill behind everything we do but not at the expense of losing whatever the heart was behind it. And it can be lost. And there are those I have been a part of worship teams who after the band has played, and it has been dynamic, as they leave the platform and go into the green room, someone says, didn't we kick butt today? Well, I really hope it was the devil's butt. But the implication is, was we nailed this one. We nailed this. We rehearsed it. We practiced it. We put it together. We nailed this one. And there's a small misdirection at that moment about what was happening. It can be when even we in the service say, man, that rocked. The worship rocked today. 
And we could start to miss something about what was meant in the worship. One of the ones that I've heard a number of times, somebody coming in, a, who's letting you know they're going to come late, and they say, well, I'm, I'm going to be a little late for church today. I'll miss the worship, but I'll get there for the word. But I want to, and I will respond to those. I will. I'll respond by saying in part, you fail to realize that as far as God is concerned, worship is his part. You see, the word is our part. I mean, as much as I'd like to believe we get a lot from the preaching of the word, God doesn't. God is not at this moment leaning over the balcony wondering what Wayne is going to say. But what touches the heart of God is a few minutes ago when you were singing, when you were posturing yourselves before him, in whatever way, posture could be this posture. And if you're listening, I'm folding my arms. Or it could be hands in the pocket. You, but how you posture yourself before almighty, majestic God. He's very... See, the worship is his part. The worship is where you get an opportunity to give him something. And if you negate that in order to get the word or the fellowship, although those are all important, you've missed giving God something that is his. You've missed... I'm going I'm to challenge you. have missed one of the most significant parts of why we even get together is to bless his name in corporate worship. One of the reasons we get together. Sing to one another in songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. A few weeks ago, I talked about the sheer power of worship singing. It breaks down barriers. It's a battle cry. It's a breakthrough song, a song of birthing. There are a number of things. And if we miss that, we have missed giving God one of the most fundamental things that he deserves. We've withheld from him. So today I want to have a little bit of fun. It's mid-August. Not be too heavy. I'm... I'm going to center what I'm going to be sharing this morning around five questions. And they're kind of, on the outset, goofy questions. But I'm going to ask you to give me a buy and to sit through this. Because these questions, I think, and maybe we even get the chance to sing together again, too. Even along the way. And it, it okay, it's, it's going to be maybe a little unconventional, but sometimes it needs to be. Here are the five questions I'm going to center my message around this morning. Number one, do you think God ever gets hungry? Number two, what does God eat when he does get hungry? Number three, why is God so intrinsically interested in worshipers? Four, why do you think God is attracted to our pitiful praise? And number five, and it's going to be relating to the story, why is Jesus, why was Jesus not hungry for human food? Why does human food not faze him? Okay, so let's go to question number one. Question number one, do you think God ever gets hungry? Now, be, that, that's a real question, so it's not just hypothetical. It's a real question out there to you. Now, I don't necessarily need you to talk to me right now. But the question is, do you think God ever gets hungry? Before you launch into your answer too quickly, let's theologically think about this for a second. Because it creates a potential theological dilemma. Before you answer too quickly, let's think about the attributes of God. He is a sovereign God. And one of the attributes of God is that he is all-sufficient. Is it not true? All-sufficiency of God. If he's all-sufficient, he has no weakness, he has no need. He's all-sufficient. It's one of the attributes of God, and it's true. So when you answer this question, do you think he ever gets hungry? There's a suggestion here that he lacks something. I mean, if I'm hungry, you know, come an hour from now, right? Right? I'm lacking something. I'm hungry. 
So it suggests God lacks something. So the question, do you think God ever gets hungry? Now, here's the other thing. Now, as you begin to try to work through the answer to that question, I want to take you back to verse 23, where it says, they are the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. That word seeks means hungers after. So the answer to the question is God, yes, he gets hungry. The kind of worshiper the Father seeks. You know, you can't but know this, that God delights in the praises of his people. And wherever God delights in something, that requires a hunger. He longs for something. So to the question, do you ever think God gets hungry? Well, yes, he just said he does. He hungers for something here. So now we naturally go to question number two. What does God eat when he gets hungry? <laughs> okay. And the answer is in our text. So let's go back to our text. Here there's Jesus with a Samaritan woman. He has an appointment with the Samaritan woman. And to understand a little of the context, the Samaritans and Jews don't get along well. They have a history of conflict. I'm going to suggest a few weeks back I talked about birthright. There was stolen birthright identified back with the Samaritans. So the Samaritans were considered uh, lesser people. There was deep cultural conflict. We have it today. But here it's between the Samaritans and the Jews. You have the setting is at Jacob's well. Now, Jacob's well is called Sigar. No, not really Sigar. Sikar. And Sikar actually means intoxicating drink. So Jesus has a divine appointment with a woman at the intoxicating drink. The woman approaches the well. And a little of her story, and commentators just kind of jump all over the place on this one as they talk about the woman. But here's the key to understanding something about the woman. We, we know later in the story she has five husbands, uh, five husbands, and the one she's with isn't her husband. So she's not got a really strong, positive reputation. The second thing, we notice she's coming to the well at high noon. It says in the sixth hour, which means mid-afternoon. She's coming mid-afternoon. Now, the women don't go to the well at mid-afternoon. A little cultural stuff here. They go in the morning, when, right after the sun rises, and they go just before sunset. They go just after the sun rises, and that's when they get their drinking water and the water for the day. They come and they gather the water at the well, and they take it home early morning. Then at the end of the day, the women, if they go back to the well, they go back to the well, and the purpose of the well at the end of the day is they wash and they bathe. Different to most of us here in Canada, where often a shower or bathing might take place first thing in the morning, the Middle East culture, and many cultures of the world for that matter, often bathe right before you go to bed. You wash the stuff off and then go to sleep. And so that is the culture there. And so the culture is, is that you, you come early, you come late. She chooses to come dead in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, because she doesn't want to meet anyone. Because it seldom goes well for her. She's the object of scorn. She's the object of ridicule. She is the object of rejection. Her past. Her past is known. She's in a village. Her past is known. So she comes at high day to not meet anyone, and her worst nightmare is being realized. She gets there, and there is a Jewish rabbi. Jesus was a rabbi. Jewish rabbi. 
Now, if anybody's going to say anything, the rabbi's going to say something, and nothing they say is going to be positive because of her reputation. So her worst nightmare, there's a Jewish rabbi. She wants to avoid the people. She is, she's successful in avoiding the townspeople. She's unsuccessful in enjoying from being able to escape a Jewish rabbi. Now, the next worst thing takes place. He talks to her. And this is bound to go south. And so here she is, and she comes, and she wants to, of course, avoid all this. But uh, the rabbi asks her a question. The question seems innocent enough. Could I please have some water? He has nothing to serve himself, no, no pails, anything. Could I please have some water? She has. She anticipates rejection. She is not prepared for the request. And so she asks. And this is where I really like all of us, I think, really have to like this woman. I've not met her, but I really like her because she just talks about what's going on inside. She's just open and honest. You have to like that. And she just says, how can you ask me that? She just doesn't say, yes, sir, and you know, try to avoid his eyes. How can you ask me that? Jews don't talk to Samaritans. Now, in that moment, Jesus embarks on a very important quest. Pick it up, verse 10. Jesus answers her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, Jesus is talking about the living water of worship. The living water of worship. And then he goes on to reveal the purpose of their divine appointment. Let's pick it up, 21. Jump down to 21 again. Jesus says, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, meaning us Jews, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and has now come, stands before you, when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father hungers. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Did you know, nine times I counted. Nine times Jesus is mentioning worship, worshiper, worship, worshiper. This is a passage about the power of worship. The Samaritan woman had walked to Jacob's well. She was thirsty for a drink of water. But she wound up meeting at that very well, the well of life. She came for a cup of water. She discovered the well of life. And she discovered that the real thirst was not her throat or her belly. The real thirst was her heart, her spirit. She longed for him. Jesus told her that Father in heaven is actively seeking. He's searching He's longing for worshipers. I'm going to say that again. God our Father is actively, this has not changed in 2,000 years. He is actively looking for worship. Today, 2021, August what, the 15th? At 5 to 11, he's looking. Where are worshipers? The point of all this, the encounter at the well is a picture of God's unceasing search for worshipers. Do you know, do you know that when we get to heaven, there are no evangelists up in heaven? There are no prophets up in heaven? 
There are no teachers. There are no pastors. There are no Sunday school teachers. There are no board members. Do you realize the only job description in heaven is worshipers? There's only one job description up there. It's worshipers. God is seeking worshipers. We think, well, you know, heaven is paved with gold and precious stone. We know the gates are with pearl, precious pearl. But you know, guess who put them there? God's not after all those things. He doesn't need any of it. There's only one commodity more precious than anything, and that is true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. True worshipers. Brings me to question number three. Why is God so intrinsically interested in worshipers? Well, I want to suggest why. If you go back and read, and I have done a recent reading of Isaiah. I've been going through prophets. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. And in those two particular texts, they are one of the best texts that give a description of a situation that took place in Tyre back at the time, a real time back in the day. But they were also a picture of something that took place, what we would call back in the eons of time, between Lucifer and Father God in heaven. They talk of Lucifer. They talk of a, of a state where he was before the Father, and he was created in order to bring worship to the throne. You read of it, and you see, it created in him, Lucifer, was worship. He was, I'm going to call it the master musician. And so when Lucifer fell, let me put it this way. If you're used to listening to a four-part quartet and a voice drops out, you recognize there's a voice missing. And when heaven lost Lucifer, when Lucifer rebelled and went out, there's something resounding that was, is no more. Heaven no longer resounds with the worship that once was in creation. It's not there. Something's missing. And what God was missing was the song of a heart of a true worshiper. God is looking for the restoration today of pure worship. This is why we see this over and over again in the New Testament. Although God is surrounded, listen, he is surrounded by angels. You read in Revelation. And this is an interesting, we were talking a little bit about this, Pascal, a moment ago. He's surrounded, heaven is surrounded with angelic hosts unceasingly declare his glory. But listen, God is missing the song of the heart. I can't find anywhere in the Bible where music is mentioned as part of heaven's environment after the fall of Satan. I can't find it. Try it. It's fun looking to see. I can't find music mentioned as part of heaven's environment after the fall of Satan. Not even when Jesus said, well, Jesus was born, the angels were singing. No, they weren't singing. They declared it. Read it. They declared. They weren't singing. We sang it. But the angels were declaring what they said to the shepherds that day. We don't have any indication of music from the heart of a worshiper in heaven. Music is the heart. Because when Satan, Lucifer, was cast out, music was part of God's venue. was robbed. Stolen. We don't have any indication that music was taken from Satan. We read in Exodus or in Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, that music was in him. I think that's one of the reasons that 
oftentimes a lot of problems that show up in churches today often center around music because it's still a part of contention. You know, we as a church can spend hour upon hour rehearsing and getting music right. And I believe in rehearsal. I believe in good singing and skill. But no matter how much you rehearse, it will never compete with the world's music. You know, like American Idol, stuff like that. We're not supposed to compete. Can I say that again? We're not supposed to compete. Our music may never be as good as the world's music because our value system is different than the world's value system. Here's the point I'm making. We are not after perfection so much as we are after presence. Amen? And you can recognize a difference between something skilled and something that has touched the heart of the Father. I take you back to that conference. I might not have known a lot of the songs that they began with, but there was presence. And the presence broke through every barrier. Every barrier I had in my life, unknown to me. Presence. The church is not about perfection, it's about presence. It's not just about skill, it's about His Spirit. That He would be among us. And when the church turns its attention towards simply technical and professional ways regarding music, or for that matter, the business of the church, we unknowingly begin competing in the wrong arena. You can't win in that arena. We need to stick to the one arena in which no one can compete with the church. And that is the art and the ability to pull down the manifest presence of a holy God. The believer, we have the capacity to cause heaven to stop and to listen. Isn't that amazing? And nothing secular can touch that. And it doesn't have anything at all to do with skill. It has to do with his presence. When God wants to hear heart worship, he has to come to the redeemed to hear it. The angels have not been redeemed. They can't sing it. But I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And he longs to hear a heart that sings for out of the place of redemption. Oh God, I worship you. I worship you. So question number four, why do you think God is attracted to our pitiful praise? If we're not that good, why is he so attracted to our pitiful praise? Well, let me answer it this way. I have two children. When they were young, when they were preschool, three, four, five years old, it wasn't uncommon for them to, to uh, draw pictures and give it to mom and dad. And they were some of the funniest pictures. Some of them were stick pictures. But ask Lori and I, what is the most valued pictures we have? And they're not the masterpieces that you would buy big money at auctions. The most favorite pictures we have are the pictures that really are not that good. Now, I'm going to get in trouble because every time I say that, my daughter listens to this and she says, come on, they were really, really good. They, okay. Why, why are they masterpieces to us? It has to do with our relationship to the one who gave it. Following? Following? Likewise, let me suggest, angels in heaven. Angels in heaven. Think about this. Angels in heaven. Psalms 8, you get a picture of this. The angels in heaven ask the question to the Father. What is man that you are mindful of him? That's a question the angelic host is asking. What is man? What is this creation 
this dust ball that you breathed into, that has rejected you. What is man that you are mindful of him? You see, the angelic host can't really figure out why everything stops in heaven, why the Almighty stops whatever's going on when he hears the pitiful refrain rising from earth, from a bunch of pitiful singing of people who are singing, Jesus, I love you. Oh, how I love you. You are the one my heart adores. Some of you know it. Sing it with me. Jesus, I love you. Oh, how I love you. You are the one my heart adores. So the question. God commands his angelic host. When a pitiful sound like that rises up, you can almost hear the angels saying in respect, saying, oh, there, there he goes again. All the while, God says, listen, I got to go. Well, where are you going, God? Well, you see, I heard something. <laughs> I heard something, and I can't ignore it. I heard the song of the redeemed. It's like heaven stops. How do we know it's taking place? Pastor, you're exaggerating this. Go back to John chapter 4. What does it say? The Father seeks those who will worship him. He longs to hear the song of the heart, the song of the pitiful. And sometimes it's dreadfully pitiful. And I think the angelic, that's why in Psalms 8 they said, there he goes again. We were right in the middle of something and he just took off. What's he doing? He's gone to enthrone. So he could gather, he could show up and build his throne around a huddle of people who just begin to sing his praise. And there he is as they huddle together and they worship with stained eyes. And God just loves to hear it coming from their heart. Something like, we worship you in spirit and we worship you in truth. Make our lives a holy praise unto you. You know that song? Sing it with me. We worship you in spirit. We worship you in truth. Make our lives a holy praise unto you. Can we do it again one more time? Just close your eyes. You know the song. We worship you in spirit. Yes, God. We worship you in truth. Make our lives a holy praise unto you. So back to the question. What does God eat when he gets hungry? You know the answer. Worship. He eats worship. That's what Jesus is telling the woman at the well. That's the story, the woman at the well. When she responded that she wanted water from the well, Jesus is saying, but there's, a, there's something else. There's something else you really need. Brings me to my last question. Why is Jesus then not hungry for human food? You see in the story, the disciples come back. They had been in town. They got some food. Jesus was tired. He was hungry. The disciples bring food back. They lay out the food, and they're hungry as bears. They dive into the food, and the Bible says Jesus wasn't hungry. Well, he was. 
But he wasn't. He wasn't hungry because he found another worshiper. He found another worshiper. How can you compare the needs of humanity when you have touched that of the divine and celestial? He just found another worshiper and he's been satisfied. He's been satisfied. And so Jesus told the woman, he says, go get your husband. And she comes clean. She doesn't even attempt to lie. She doesn't attempt to blur the lines. She just comes clean and says, I have no husband. And Jesus, in his excitement, the, the way the text is framed, he cuts her off. Kind of like the father and the prodigal son. The son came back with the rehearsed line of how he was going to beg to be a servant. And the father couldn't take it anymore and cut him off and says, you're not going to be a servant. You're my son. And the woman begins to talk about these five husbands. And Jesus steps in and he says, you are right when you say you have no husband. In fact, in, the fact is you have five husbands and the one you have is not your husband. See, now Jesus truly had something he could work with. Not only was she hungry for worship, she was pure. She was real. He can work with that. She was honest. And by the time he was done, she had abandoned her water pots. She was running pell-mell back into the village to tell the people, the same people she was trying to avoid. She runs back in yelling, telling them about Jesus, the well of water. So transformed, the same woman tells a whole village and an entire village comes to discover the living water. And Jesus would stay there with them for some time. Here's the point. The woman had one encounter with Jesus and a whole village listens. You know, sometimes we go about this backwards. Sometimes we go about it with our methods and, and, and plans but one of the best ways that you can ever be a witness is be an all-out abandoned worshiper. Worship him in spirit and in truth. Let it rise from your heart. Let it rise from your spirit. One encounter with God changes everything. So the invitation this morning is come brothers, come sisters, and worship. God is listening. Go on, worship for he desires your heart's appeal. God is actively today searching for worshipers at this very moment. It is the only thing that brings heaven to earth. It's true worship. True worship. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Father in heaven, help us again to understand and appreciate the gist of this story was the woman had come for a physical need. Jesus, you saw something deeper than that physical need. And out of that, heaven was moved. A city was reached. And lives were transformed. Oh God, right here today, there's a hunger, I believe. And Lord, it sometimes is pitiful. Sometimes it's not well polished at all. But that makes absolutely zero difference to you. Because you're interested as the heart hungry. This woman had a hunger. This woman had a desire. And he can work with that. Those that think they have everything. Those that are content for what they are and have. You can't work with that. 
And Lord, I believe this morning there are brothers and sisters of mine here. Certainly my heart. There's a hunger, oh God. Not simply for the same old. Not simply to go through the act. Not simply to go through the routine and go to church and be the church and all that stuff. As good as that is, God, you've called us to be people, men and women, who will worship you in spirit and in truth. Who have a hunger for you and you alone. Who call on your name, oh God. And don't even care about our own reputation. Because it's not about us. It's about you. Lord, we long. We long to know you. And God, we know. We know you hunger for such. You long to listen for the cry of the redeemed. And when we lift our voice and we begin to call and sing and praise you. God, we know you said you are in the midst of those who praise you. You are enthroned. Even two or three gathered together. And Lord, there's more than that here this morning. Gathered together just to worship you. Come and establish your throne. Establish your throne in our midst. Thank you, Lord. I invite you, would you join in standing? Just a moment, the worship team is just going to lead us in that song they ended with. Lord, here I am to worship. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Open my eyes, let me see. Beauty that made this heart adore you. Hope of a life spent with you. So here I am to worship. Here I am. Don't worry about what the person next to you. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say, you're it. You're it. You're all there ever could be. You're it. You're all together lovely. You're altogether worthy. You're altogether wonderful to me. Here's what I'm going to invite you to do. The woman took a step out when she went to the well that day and she met the living water. I'm going to invite you this morning. we got lots of room right across the front. I think we can do this. I invite you as we begin to lead in this song, why don't you just come? If you hunger to just give them the song of the heart of the redeemed, your heart, in this song. And just I invite you, come up, just come. For him, not for me, not for the worship team, not for anybody to see you, who cares? Let God see you though. Step out, go forward, and sing the song of the redeemed this morning. And then, and then, having set the mark, go from here. Can you take it up a few notches? <laughs> and worship him. Call on his name. If you can play like amazing Pascal can play on the piano, go for it. If you can just two-finger it, go for it. You can make a joyful noise, go for it. You see, it has nothing to do with that. Absolutely nothing. It has to do with the position of the heart. And as you begin to worship him, you might be listening to a CD or an album, Spotify. However, worship him. Lift your voice. Let your heart resonate and observe how you move out of this moment into something celestial you may feel nothing may see nothing may experience that moment nothing but know this from a heart that is pure and true remember worship him in spirit and in truth from a heart that is true you know his spirit has moved in he's moved close He's putting his ear next to your heart to listen 
because you're redeemed. The angels have never been redeemed. He's listening to one of his redeemed ones declaring his goodness. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.